Hey, we're continuing our series this week on the life of Abram. God called Abram out. Uh, We see his story begin kind of in Genesis chapter 11. And God called him out and said, Abram, I want you to leave your native country and go to a land I'll show you. And so the title of the series is Leave Your Native Country because God calls each one of us out to follow him on a journey of faith. And we're watching the life of Abraham or Abram as he grows, as he learns to follow God. We don't just know how to live by faith as human beings. We don't just come out of the womb ready to do it. We've got to learn. And so uh, Abram learns about who God is and how to follow him. And we're learning by following his story uh, what it looks like in our lives. How to recognize when God's at work. How to see when God's doing something. And so we can respond to that. So we can be aware of what the journey looks like. And so if you want to turn your Bible to Genesis 17, that's a chapter we're going to be in today. Working through this chapter. The the story as we're following it last week, God... um, Uh, had promised, as you recall, Abram and Sarai, that they would have a child. And God promised them that they would be the the parents of a great nation, of as many people would be their descendants as there are stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. And yet Abram is nearing 100 years of age, Sarai is nearing 90 years of age, and they still don't have a child. And so having grown past the childbearing years, having uh, the ability to have children become an impossibility physically. They grow a little desperate. And last week we saw where Sarai brought Abram Hagar, uh, her, one of her servants, an Egyptian servant, and said, hey, take Hagar, Hagar as your wife and maybe uh, she can get pregnant and give you a son or an heir. And so they did that. And of course that was not the plan that God had for them. He had promised to provide them a child. And so we watched that last week, them try to take a shortcut to achieving God's will, to seeing God's will happen in their life, and we uh, certainly recognize that we can be tempted to do that as well. This week we pick up the story, um, moving uh, to the next phase, and this week we focus in on this, that following God means gaining a new identity. God is going to change who you are. When you put your trust in Christ, things begin to change. I've heard new Christians articulate it this way. They say, I feel like I'm losing myself. I don't know who I am anymore. Um, I'm disoriented. And the truth is that God will change you when you put your trust in him. He will change you. He sets out to transform you radically into a new person. But it's not your true identity that you're losing. Your real identity as the child of God that God created you to be, is just simply emerging. And so you're starting to get in touch with the real you, the you that God created you to be. And so though it can be a little disorienting, the truth is that your new identity is your true identity. When God comes into our life, he begins to change us. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. He says this, So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. God wants to do something new in your life. He's going to uh, create in you 
and bring to life who you really were intended to be. There was a story told of a London businessman, Lindsay Clegg, who went to look at a property, and this was an old warehouse uh, building in a city, and he went to look at it with the idea of purchasing it. And so as he was there looking at it, the realtor was showing him the property, and the property had been vandalized, heavily vandalized. And so the windows are broken out, and there was graffiti all over it, and inside things had been destroyed, and there had been people living in there, and so it was just a mess. And the realtor kept saying, listen, just ignore that, we're going to fix that, you know, problem, we're going we're to fix these windows, and we're going to take the graffiti up, we'll get this place in shape, don't, you know, don't be turned off by its appearance and its condition. And finally, uh, Lindsay said, listen, man, you don't have to quit, keep defending the, the building, because I'm not interested in the building, I'm going to level it. I'm interested in the property. That's what I want. I got plans for this place. See, when God comes into our life, sometimes we think, I've messed things up too bad. I'm too far gone. I have too much sin. I've done too many bad things. There's nothing that can be done with this. And we lose, we lose hope in what God wants to do. But can I tell you something? God doesn't, it, it doesn't matter what you've done with your life, where you've gotten your life to, okay? It doesn't matter. Because the God who created you wants to come in and recreate you. He's the one that made you the first time, okay? And so what you've done with your life to this point is not dictate what God can do with you in the future. We simply have to embrace this identity that God wants to give us, and it happens as we follow him. Well, God appears to Abraham, or Abram, excuse me, um, following the Ishmael Uh, incident last week, God appears to Abram again, and this time he begins to change his identity. God is going to press into Abram what he wants to do in his life. God uh, God Almighty gives Abram a new name. In Genesis 17, if you want to follow along as I read, starting in verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell face down on the ground. Then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations." I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. God appears to Abram, changes his name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And God reasserts the promise that he made to him. He's going to fulfill it. But he begins to change who Abram is. Abram has been learning to walk by faith. He's been discovering it, but now God says, you're going to have a new identity. You're going to have a different name because of what I'm going to do in you. Because I'm going to make something out of you that you couldn't make out of yourself. Look, you can't have children. You've gone your whole life without being able to bear children and produce prodigy, but I'm going to do it. 
with you and, and, and Sarai. We all have a desire for significance. We want to be somebody. Uh, there's something inside of us that intuitively tells us that there's a destiny we should be fulfilling. It's interesting that until we discover a relationship with Jesus, that goes undiscovered, unfulfilled in our lives. Like the person that, says, uh, that said it this way, I've always wanted to be somebody, but now I, uh, now I see I should have been more specific. <laughs> we have an idea of what we want to become. We have a thought about what our destiny might be, and we work to try to fulfill it. That is usually a road with some disappointments and discouragements, but God, when he enters our life, his plan for us, his destiny for us, is virtually uh, impossible to stop. The only thing that can stop it is if we don't continue to grow and follow him. We're talking about our vision for discipleship. Uh, you know, we have chair one. We, we use four chairs to describe our vision for discipleship, which is simply the calls of Jesus on our life. Chair one is a, a seeker. A person comes to check out the claims of Jesus. We call that come and see. And that's where you start. That's where anyone starts when they engage Jesus for the first time. Check out what he's all about. Chair two is where I move to become a follower. A chair two person has acknowledged that Jesus is in fact the son of God. That as the Bible tells us, Jesus came to the earth. He was born to a virgin, Mary. He, uh, he grew and as he grew, he learned the scriptures, he developed, um, he matured, and all the while, he lived a, a sinless life because he was God in the flesh. And so he did not sin. He began a ministry where he interacted with people, he taught people, he walked uh, amongst us as a human race. We could feel him and touch him, we could listen to him, and he talked to us about who God is, about how God feels about us, what God wants from us. He revealed to us, right, God and more about God. And then we know the story that Jesus ultimately went to the cross. He was put on trial. He was beaten. He was found guilty falsely. And he was uh, taken to um, um, the place of the skull, Golgotha, where he was hung on a cross by Roman soldiers, nailed to it. And he hung and bled and died there. His, his blood spilt, his body broken for all of humanity. The Bible says that Jesus atoned for the sins of the world, meaning he paid for the sins. So your sins, my sins, uh, the person next to you's sins, and every person that's ever walked the planet or ever will. Jesus' death, the perfect Lamb of God, paid for all that sin, atoned for it. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no payment for sin. And so this is the work that Jesus did, and uh, that he was put in a grave following his, uh, when he was taken down off the cross. He spent three days there, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. The tomb was open, and he was not there. Following that, he appeared to his followers, 500 at one time, to his disciples, to those that followed him, confirming that it was indeed him who rose from the dead. A person that moves into chair two, becoming a follower of Jesus, a believer, is a person that believes that, that Jesus' work on the cross was for me, and I put my trust in him, Right? And, I, and putting my trust in him means that I'm, uh, I'm taking the work that he did on the cross and I want that applied to my sin in my life. And once I do that, that's where I begin to learn and discover and walk in the new identity that God wants to create in me. I start to discover who I really am. 
The Apostle Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. He describes it this way, this transformation that takes place in the book of Ephesians, written to the the church in Ephesus. In chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he describes a couple of uh, aspects that identify us or are true of our identity before we trust in Jesus. First of all, he says we're spiritually dead. What's our identity before we trust Christ? Well, we're spiritually dead. This is how he says it. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. People say, well, I'm not dead. I'm alive. Well, no, we're talking about spiritually. Your spirit, uh, the spirit in you that God created in you, that component of you is dead. It's comatose. There's no pulse. It's not alive because it's dead and it's in your sins and you can't get out of that. You can't do anything about it. It's your condition. And so this is your identity and the identity of all of us before we trust Christ. Secondly, it says that we obeyed the devil. He goes on to say, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of who? Of those who refuse to obey God. So what's my identity before I trust Christ? Well, I'm dead spiritually, and I'm following the devil's teaching. People go, no, I'm doing what I want to do. Exactly. (laughs) That's the devil's teaching. That's his mindset. That's his mentality. He wants you to do what you want to do. Just keep doing that. And that'll keep you away from what God wants you to do, right? And so we're following the devil's instructions. We're following him, whether we know it or not. The third thing that identifies or gives definition to our identity before Christ is that we're going to be judged by God. Paul goes on to say all of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. We're headed for judgment. That's the path we're on. Because we're dead in our sins, by our own guilt, our own activity, we're following the devil's instruction, his mentality, his mindset, his lies, and we're, facing, we're going to face judgment. And that's true of every person that has not put their trust in Jesus. Not, not trusted in the work that he did on the cross. So it's our identity before we get saved. But then Paul goes on to say, what's the transformation when we trust Christ? What's the new identity that we gain? Starting in ver- verse 4 of chapter 2 in Ephesians. These are some aspects of our new identity. Some qualifiers. Some things that help define it. First of all, we're recipients of God's mercy. God's mercy. He says it this way, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. You know what mercy is, right? It's not getting something you deserved. When you deserve punishment and you don't get it from God, that's mercy. And the truth is we deserve God's judgment. We deserve his punishment. That's a fact based on what we've done. But when God shows mercy to us, we don't get it. My kids, when they would fight, they used to want fairness. I said, it's not fair. He got that, she got that. I said, you don't want fairness. <laughs> you don't want fairness. That's getting what you deserve, right? No, you want grace. You want mercy, okay? And so uh, that's the reality. We need God's mercy, and we begin to gain that, experience it when we put our trust in Christ. Second qualifier is that we're alive in Christ. Paul goes on to say that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. He says, listen, God breathes into you and your spirit comes alive. 
the real you, the person that you are, person God created you to be, when you trust in him by faith, he breathes new life into you. And you begin to come alive. You begin to wake up. Your spirit comes alive. You begin to connect with the truth of God and understand who it is that he's created you to be. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved, uh, that you've been saved Paul says. And what is grace? Well, grace is getting something that you don't deserve. That's the definition of grace. So salvation comes to us. It's grace. It's the grace of God poured out on us. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn it, as he'll go on to say. But it's simply because of God's goodness, his character, that he gives it to us. He loves us. He wants to save us. And so he does so based on his merit and based on what he has done on our behalf. The next thing is that we become united with Jesus. We were enemies before, separated from the one who made us. But when we trust in Christ, we get united with him. This is how Paul says it. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. As shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. We get united with Jesus. We were enemies separated, distant from him. But we put our trust in Jesus, and all of a sudden we're united with him. We're brought into closeness with him. There's a relationship with him that begins. He begins to speak into our life, right? He communicates to us. We begin to grow. We begin to understand who it is, again, that he created us to be. Well, next, we are made right. We're set apart. We're going to spend eternity with God based on uh, this salvation that God gives us. This is our new identity. Paul says it this way. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Salvation is not based on your efforts. It's not based on the fact that you're better than your spouse or better than your siblings or better than your neighbor. That's not what salvation is based on. It has nothing to do with that. It's based on the fact that God shows favor to you when you put your trust in him. He's made a covenant, right? He's going to keep it. And if you put your trust in him, then he's going to come into your life and save you. You're changed. You're set apart. You're different now. You also, the last thing that Paul talks about in this passage, is you become God's masterpiece. You become his masterpiece. For we are God's masterpiece, Paul says. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We're made into a new creation. We're brought alive in Christ. Our spirit comes alive. We are a new creation. We get to grow in him and learn how to live and become capable of doing good in the world. Doing the things that God wants done. You've received salvation as a free gift. Now live for Christ out of gratitude for what he's done for you. The Apostle Paul describes in Romans 6, as I shared earlier, this transformation life. The transformation life that happens to us. We are changed when we trust in him. In Romans 6, Paul says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? No, he says, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined with him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. 
And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. So there's a transformation in our relationship to sin. We grow to hate and move away from what God calls sin. The world we live in encourages us to walk in sin. It laughs at what the Bible calls sin, what God calls sin. That's not wrong. No, that's actually good. And if you'll watch what happens in the world, more evidence that it's following the devil's teaching is that they begin to elevate things that God says are wrong. Things that will be destructive for us. The world says, no, these are good. You can do more of them. There was an old preacher that uh, was preaching one time and he was hard on sin and he called it out very aggressively. And afterwards, one of the board members in the church came to him and said, preacher, you're pushing too hard on the sin thing. We're worried that our kids are going to hear you talk about sin and they're going to be more tempted to do it. All right, and, and so to call it a mistake, whatever you want, but quit being so hard on this. Quit talking about it so much. He said, listen, he took a bottle off the shelf. He said, you know what this is? To the gentleman, he said, no, I don't. He said, this is strychnine. It's a deadly poison. What you're asking me to do is change the label and put essence of peppermint on it or something like that so that people, right, they'll take it down, they'll use it in their cooking. Pretty soon they're dead because he took the poison. He's like, I'm not going to quit calling sin what it is. And I'm not going to quit talking about the effects of it because it's a warning to people. People can be rescued from its effects. It's a path to death. Don't let sin get a foothold in your life. Resist it. Fight it. Run from it. Work to become holy and more aligned with God. Well, God continues his changes in Abraham by having him identify himself permanently as belonging to God. Let's continue reading Genesis 17 and verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. This is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. You must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between you and me. From generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This applies not only to members of your family, but also to the servants born in your household and the foreign-born servants whom you have purchased. All must be circumcised. Your bodies will bear the mark of my everlasting covenant. Any male who fails to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant family for breaking the covenant. This is the old covenant, a covenant that God is making with Abraham. Right? He's changing his name, and now there's a permanent mark, a physical uh, mark that will align him, will identify him as a worshiper of Almighty God. And so, when we trust Christ, the New Testament teaches there's a spiritual circumcision that happens to us as well. There's a mark. Our lives are changed forever, permanently, because of our trust in Jesus. Colossians 2, this is how it's described. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, not by a spiritual procedure, Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. And so here's what happens. You trust in Christ, and it isn't a physical procedure like Abraham went through, but it is a spiritual one. The sin nature that is connected to you, it's a part of you, right? It controls your behavior, is cut away. And so no longer are you bound to sin. You don't have to sin. You're set free to begin to obey God. And to begin to do what's good, the new identity begins to uh, unveil itself and to be revealed in you as you trust in Christ. Your sin nature doesn't disappear, though. It's cut away. It's dislodged from you. 
so that you no longer have to sin like before, but now you, must, you still have to fight it. You still have to resist your sin nature by moving in obedience towards God. There's a couple of um, things that give us the power to begin to change. The power from God that enters our life. The first is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's presence in us is to convict, it's to empower us, to speak to us, uh, to give us direction, right? And to pray for us when we don't know how to pray. This is what the Holy Spirit does. But sometimes we listen or, or we resist the Holy Spirit's voice in our lives. We quit listening to him. I don't want to do that. It's like the, um, the park ranger that was taking a group of hikers out uh, on a hike and he was leading them towards a, a, a fire lookout tower. And uh, as he was leading them, he got irritated by the radio that was on his hip because it kept going off. And so he turned it down so he could focus on uh, his guiding through the tour and pointing out to, uh, to the folks with him the, the, the beautiful plant life and, and, uh, and the trees and the, and the nature around. And as they neared the tower, a lookout came running up to him, said, hey, we've been trying to get a hold of you. What's wrong? He said, well, oh, well, I turned my radio down. It was irritating it was bothering me. It was getting in the way of what I was doing. And so we'll be trying to get a hold of you. There's a grizzly bear trekking your group, right? And we're trying to save you. <laughs> listen, uh, we listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit becomes that voice in our minds. Sometimes it's a little irritating. He makes us feel bad about the stuff we're doing. He says, hey, turn. Quit doing that. And we go, I don't want to leave. Leave me alone. I want to do what I want to do. It's to your own demise, <laughs> Because the Holy Spirit's trying to lead us in a direction of transformation, of change, so that we can stop doing the stuff that's killing us, right? Spiritually killing us, and we can begin to do the good that God created us to do. We've got to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. I run into people periodically who get frustrated with Christianity. It doesn't work. I, I just can't. It, it doesn't seem to happen. The, the things God promised, I'm not seeing those happen in my life. And the truth is that we don't engage always the, the transformational power that God's given us. We don't engage the Holy Spirit. God's given us his word, the scriptures, to get in the very breath of God, the words of God to speak to us. We don't engage those. He's given us the church and, and relationships where we can get discipled and we can get help growing and we don't engage those. And then, and then we get frustrated. And uh, it's like... Sometime back on the Associated Press, there was this dispatch, Glasgow, uh, Glasgow, Kentucky, Leslie Puckett. After struggling to start his car several times, for some time he lifted the hood, discovered somebody had stolen the motor. Listen, uh, you can't live the Christian life without engaging what God's offered to you. Can't live the Christian life without following him, getting in the scriptures, listening to the Holy Spirit, and engaging a discipleship relationship we have a discipleship core class that we're started here. I want everybody to take this. I want all of you to get through it because it gives us a vision for what God wants us to do, where we're going. We start a new class in two weekends, right? Uh, next, I think it's March, was it five and six, I believe. So that's coming up. Get signed up for it. Uh, go on Realm or send us an email and just say, I want to take that class. Uh, you can engage that discipleship process. If you're stuck, if you haven't been moving in your walk with God, you need to. That's part of what God has for you. So get involved in that. We also have a group that we can get you connected to a discipleship relationship. Someone that can walk with you, do Bible study, learn how to, how to follow Jesus, how to grow in that. And so I want to encourage you, get a hold of me. If you're interested in that kind of relationship, I will get you connected with somebody that can help you grow. 
God speaks to Abraham about the promise he has made and the covenant that he will keep. Almighty God reaffirms his promise to give them a child. Let's continue reading Genesis 17 in verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai. From now on, her name will be Sarah. And I will bless her and give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly. And she will become the mother of many nations. Kings, kings of nations will be among her descendants. Then Abraham bowed down to the ground, but he laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of 100, he thought. And, and how can Sarah have a baby when she is 90 years old? So Abraham said to God, May Ishmael live under your special blessing. But God replied, No. Sarah, your wife, will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. As for Ishmael, I will bless him also, just as, just as you have asked. I will make him extremely fruitful and multiply his descendants. He will become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will be confirmed with Isaac, who will be born to you, and Sarah about this time next year. When God had finished speaking, he left Abraham. On that very day, Abraham took his son, Ishmael, and every male in his household, including those born there and those he had bought. Then he circumcised them, cutting off the foreskins, just as God had told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and Ishmael, his son, was 13. Both Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised on that day, on that same day, along with all the other men and boys of, his, of the household, whether they were born there or bought as servants. All were circumcised with him. God reaffirms his promise to Abraham. He says, nope, the shortcut you took, I'm going to work with you because I love you and I'm God and I'll keep the promise I made, but that's not how this is going to get done, Abraham. I'm going to do it the way I said I was going to do it. I'm wondering today if you struggle to believe the promises of God. I mean to really walk in them, to believe them, to know for sure that if God promised you something, if he promises something in Scripture, that he's going to keep it and fulfill it. Because that's the only way you can walk by faith. Now, we fail at times just like Abraham did. We struggle. But I want to tell you today, I want to reassert, reaffirm that God's promise to you, he's going to keep. Because that's what he does. We did, uh, uh, we've been, had the, the privilege and opportunity to bring some food into this community. And uh, the churches in this area kind of gone together and, and co connected with different organizations to bring in like semi loads of food over the last year. And we just did one on Friday <clears throat> and we had, um, I don't know, 16 pallets, 60 meals uh, on each pallet and then in each box or 60 boxes on each pallet. And then in the boxes, there was a bunch of, of food. So it provided a, a bunch of meals. Um, but we had the opportunity to give that away on Friday. And so we set up there and we had all this food out and we had gallons of milk that we're, we were able to give away as well. And so cars came through and, and we gave this away. And <clears throat> I found out this weekend that one of, uh, one of the ladies that come to our church, her, her, grand, her, her daughter and grandson came through the line. I actually saw them uh, as they came through. But I found out the story was that the night before, Thursday night, uh, the little boy drank the last of their milk and, and they ran out. He said, Mom, you got to plan better. I got to have my milk, you know. And she's like, well, I know, son, but I don't know if we can afford any more milk this week. You know, things are tight. And so she finds out about this food giveaway, comes through the line, and I mean, she's just overwhelmingly thankful as she was leaving. Thank you so much for this. I mean, 
Well, I found out later, of course, this story. It ran out of milk. So mom comes home with some milk on Friday for this little boy and says, hey, (laughs) God provided some milk for you because milk comes from God. I wonder for you, as you live your life, do you know that what you have, what you need, is going to come from God? That's where it comes from. And God is going to provide. He's going to take care of your physical needs, but he's going to grow you spiritually. When God says that, hey, take my yoke on you, it's easier. (laughs) It's easier than the one you're carrying. Do you really believe that? Are you willing to take on his yoke and let go of your own? When he says, listen, um, uh, you know, no matter how far you run away from me, no matter how hard you try to get away from me, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to keep coming after you until I get you back. Like he promises in John 15 in the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. I wonder if you know that or do you think maybe you've gone too far? The promises of God are many. The scriptures teach us what God wants to do in our lives. I want to call you today back to trusting in him. I don't care how many disappointments, how many times you think it didn't happen, didn't work. Abram, Abraham went through a lot of those. But God kept saying, I'm going to keep my promise. And as we look at the, the story next week, we're going to see that God does. He performs the miracle that he said he would. He's going to do the same thing in your life. God, thank you for your call to us to belong to you, to follow you. I pray for anybody here, Father, that hasn't put their trust in you yet, that hasn't stepped into chair two to become a follower, to put their trust in what you've done for them on the cross by dying and paying for their sins. God, I pray that today they put their trust in you. Believe in what you've done. Father, for those that already know you, I pray for a recommitment, a fresh commitment to follow you, to step forward, to live by faith, to trust your promises, to believe in you, to walk out each day knowing that you will keep the promises that you've made. God, we want the new identity that you want to give us. We want to grow in that. Father, help us as we continue to get up each day and struggle to live for you, discover who it is that you want us to be. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.